It's good to be with you this evening. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John 6, verse 35. And he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's the context that we're looking at today, and the context that we're finishing this, uh, this evening. Just by way of reminder, remember that this morning we looked at three sections of this chapter, beginning in verse number 22. We have the search for the bread of life that starts in verse 22 and extends through verse 27. We have the provision of the bread of life that begins in verse number 28 and extends through verse number 35. And then we have the benefits of the bread of life that begins in verse 36 and ends at verse number 40. The people, after having been fed, the pre, uh, after having been Uh, fed on the previous day according to chapter 6 verses 1 to 14 they travel across the lake and they're looking for Jesus and as Jesus will reveal in verses 26 and 27 their motivation for seeking him was not at all what it should have been their motive was carnal their motive was fleshly and physical instead of spiritual as you recall and so Jesus gave them a command in verse 27 And the command simply was this, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for that which endures to everlasting life. And it carries with it the connotation or the idea of getting your priorities in line, of understanding that there are things that are of far greater value than the earthly, uh, fleshly, mundane things that we see in this life or in this world. And so as this conversation, really, this back and forth takes place and ensues, the people catch on to the fact that Jesus is telling them that they need to labor, that they need to work. And so their question is, well, what work do we need to do? And his answer is, you need to believe on the one in whom he's, who he is sent. Belief, of course, implies action. It implies obedience and submission and acceptance of the will of God. And so they said, well, give us some evidence, some proof, some sign that we need to believe in you. After all, you're to be greater than Moses, so do something greater than Moses. And you remember that Jesus corrected their misunderstanding. He told them in verse 32, it wasn't Moses that gave you bread at all. It actually was God, the Father, and he continues to give you bread. He continues to give you bread from heaven, and that bread is me. And if you will eat, if you will eat, if you will partake, of me as the bread of life, then you will have eternal life and you will have this eternal spiritual satisfaction. All of your spiritual needs will be met far greater than any physical need which physical food could ever provide. Now with the really the meat of this section having been fleshed out for the remainder of the chapter, 20 verses or so, we have really four easy sections. You have two questions and then you have two reactions. You have a question of identity or who. You have a question of logistics or how. And then you have denial and you have acceptance. Two questions and two reactions. Let's look at them, uh, let's look at them quickly this evening. Our first question is a question of identity or a question of who, and it's found in verses 41 to 51. Notice in verse 41 and 42 that the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not 
Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? This is their complaint. Essentially, what it is that they're saying is, who does he think he is? Who is he to say, I have come down from heaven? After all, we know his mom and we know his dad and we've seen him grow up as a child. How can he stand here and tell us that I have come from heaven? Now, they're at least paying some bit of attention because nine times in this chapter, reference is made to the fact that Jesus has come not from Mary and Joseph, but that Jesus has come from the Father in heaven. They're grappling with the fact or complaining about not that Jesus says, I have the ability to give you, uh, I have the ability to give you eternal life. They're missing the point. They're missing that point altogether. Their issue is not, I can give you eternal life. Their issue is, I have come from heaven. And the irony is so great that it cannot be missed. Here we have they themselves comparing Jesus with Moses. Verse 14, verse 15, verse 30, and verse 31. They're asking Jesus to do something greater than Moses did. And yet they're reacting to Jesus in the exact same way that their forefathers reacted to Moses. Do you remember? Exodus 16, verse 1 and 2. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. Moses gave the people, or rather God, as Jesus explains, manna from heaven. He fed them and met their physical needs. And yet what did the people do? They complained and they murmured and they grumbled because of their faithlessness. We have the exact same song in the second verse in John chapter 6. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus feeds like Moses, except Jesus feeds better than Moses. And yet the reaction is the same. Grumbling and complaining because of their faithfulness and because of their inability to accept. Not that Jesus says, I have the ability to give you eternal life, but rather Jesus has claimed to come from heaven. He's claiming identity. And they're arguing the point. Who does he think he is? How can he say these things about himself? Look how Jesus answers it in verses 43 through 48. It almost appears as if Jesus is really uh, not answering the question at all, as if he's brushing it to the side and then dealing with a different point. But I want to submit to you that he is answering it, and he is answering it in an incredibly powerful way, and this section may very well be the key to the entire chapter. Jesus says, don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Now, they're asking about Jesus' identity in verse 41 and 42. What does his answer reveal about his identity? Let's work our way through it. Notice, first of all, he talks about coming to him. He talks about being drawn. And this isn't the first time we've seen this language. Look back up at verse 37. Jesus said, all who the Father gives me will come to me. And uh, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So we're talking about those who come to the Lord in verse number 37. And now in verse number 44, Jesus says, And oh, by the way, no one's going to come to me unless, uh, unless the Father draws him. 
And if the Father draws him, then I'll raise him up at the last day. You have to circle verse 44 and connect it to verse 37 through 40. It's the same concept. It's the same point. But he's elaborating it, elaborating it, excuse me, elaborating on it some. He then quotes in verse number 45 from the book of Isaiah, they'll all be taught of God and tells us how the Lord draws. So no one can come to me except the Father draw him. And the Father draws through teaching. They'll all be taught of God. That's the point, that the Father draws through teaching. And then verse 46, here is, here is the exclamation point. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he who has seen the Father. Let me ask you a question. Have we seen anything like this before in the book of John? Do you remember John chapter 1 and verse number 18? What did Jesus say about himself? No one has seen God, or rather I should say what is said about Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And in the previous chapter, John 5 and verse number 37, Jesus said, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And then later on in the book of John, in John chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, Thomas will ask the Lord, ask Jesus to show us the Father. And Jesus will say, Have I not been, so, uh, been with you so long that you don't recognize that you have seen the Father? Because if you see me, you see the Father. Now the question, Jesus is making the same point in verse 46, but what does it have to do with explaining and elaborating upon the question of identity in verse 41 and 42? No one comes unless they're drawn. They're drawn by being taught by God. They're taught by Christ, who is the revelation of God. You see, as this goes on, there's going to be this growing emphasis upon the word, upon the teaching. And Jesus is, after all, the word of life. And uh, he is the word become flesh. And Jesus will say that his word is that which gives life. And so in this chapter, he said, listen, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To partake of the bread of life is to say that we obey the word of life. And Jesus says, listen, you're asking who I am, and I'm telling you who I am is I am the one who have come from the Father, verse 46. I am the one who has seen the Father, and I am the one who declares the Father. And so when God draws people, verse 45 and 46, through teaching, I'm the one who's doing the teaching. And it's my word that the Lord, that the Father is using to draw you to me. So they're asking, who are you to make these statements? And Jesus says, listen, I'm the revelation of God. And the word become flesh. And so therefore, because I have seen him and I am from him, therefore, therefore, I teach, I teach of him. He goes on and concludes the section then in verse 49 through 51. It's really just a capstone of what we've already seen. But the real emphasis in the section of verse 41 through 51 is identity. Who is this person? Who is Jesus to tell us, I have come down from the Father? And Jesus says, well, here's who I am. I am of the Father. I am the revelation of the Father. 
and the words that I speak are the words that the Father gives me, and God will draw you to me through those words. That's my identity. Now look at the second question. The second question is a question of logistics or a question of how. Jesus has said, look, I am the bread of life. And they say, well, who do you think you are? Well, I'm the one come from the Father. I'm the revelation of God. Therefore, I can make this claim. Okay, fine. You say that. Now tell us this. How in the world are we supposed to actually, how are we supposed to partake of this bread of life? What exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus says, thank you. I'm glad you asked. In verse 52, they quarreled among themselves. They're arguing, they're bickering, they're fighting. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. uh, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats, <coughs> he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, in this question of logistics, Jesus makes very clear. They ask, well, how in the world are we supposed to partake of your flesh? And Jesus in no uncertain terms, says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that's the person who's going to live. Now, one thing should be said from the outset, because it's important, this context has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Not one thing. If it did have something to do with partaking of the Lord's Supper, then we would have a problem, because the implication would be that whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we procure eternal life. And we know that that's not the case at all. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is just widening the metaphor. He's increasing the word picture. He's elaborating upon what he's already told us. And what is it that he's already told us? He's told us back in John chapter 6 and verse number 29, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. He told us in John chapter 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He told us in verse number 44 and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and he draws by teaching. So when he gets to this point of application in verse 52 and following, he's simply elaborating on what he's already said. Just as we eat food and digest food in order to have strength and nourishment, so we're going to have to receive and accept and internalize the Son, if you will. Notice chapter 6 and verse number 40 in particular. Jesus said in that passage, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is simply in reference to hearing and believing and obeying. And look at the result. Jesus says in this context that uh, there's going to be an abiding, if you will. He says in, uh, he says in verse, number, uh, verse number 55 and following, that my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He is equating belief, obedience, dedicated, obedient followership with eternal life in the previous passages of the chapter. 
In this section, he is equating the same things, belief and obedience and followership with fellowship. In other passages, the word of God is said to abide in Christians. John 5 verse 38, John 8 verse 31. The Father abides in the Son, John 14, 10. The Son abides in the love of God, John 15 and verse number 10. But in this case, Jesus says, He who dedicates himself to me, he who obeys me and follows me, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he abides in me. So the question of identity is, Who is Jesus to say, and what right does he have to say, I am the one come from heaven? And Jesus answers and says, I'm the revelation of God, and I am the word become flesh. And so therefore, I can say this because it's true. And then there's a question of logistics. How in the world are we to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And Jesus just elaborates on what he's already said by accepting what I say. By allowing the Father to draw you through my teaching, through the Word of God, by believing it and obeying and following faithfully. Now then, we have two responses. We have rejection and we have acceptance. We have rejection in verse 60 through 66. And I want you to notice in verse 60 that the Bible says that many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said it's a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained of this, he said, does it offend you? Do you see what's happening here? Jesus has just said something that to them is a hard saying, but what's really happening is that the disciples, it's not that it's hard in the sense that it's hard for them to grapple with and understand. They do understand it. The issue is that it offends them. The issue is that they're not willing to accept it. And so Jesus goes on and says, well, listen, if this offends you, verse number 62, what then if you, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, you've had a hard time accepting what I've said about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and about me being the bread that comes from heaven. What are you going to do when you actually see me go back up into heaven where I've come from just as I'm telling you? He then in verse 63 takes us right back to where we started in verse 26 and 27 with this whole discussion about the carnal versus the spiritual And the whole problem where these folks are operating purely on a fleshly carnal plane instead of a spiritual plane. Jesus says it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is where they placed all their emphasis. The flesh is where they paid all of their attention. Jesus said that can't save you. John 3 verse 5 and 6, Jesus would say, Uh, that uh, no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless he's born again of the Spirit. And he says that uh, the flesh produces or is of the flesh and the Spirit, the Spirit. What Jesus is trying to get them to understand in John chapter 6 and verse number 63, that the words that he is speaking, that those words are life, it's not the fleshly things, it's not even just his body, if you will, but rather it's uh, his uh, willingness to sacrifice his body. It's the atonement that he's going to provide for them on the cross. It is this eternal spiritual nourishment that he has the ability and the intention to provide. It is the word of God. John 6, verse 63, and John 6, verse 44 and 45. If they'll allow the Father to draw them through the words and the teaching of the Son, 
and obey the word and the teaching of the Son, then it's the word that will result in life. But unfortunately, verse 66 says, from that time many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. You see, they were too offended. They couldn't handle it. And again, we see another occurrence that continues to happen. We asked the question this morning, or at least made the point about this context, about how it forces us to come face to face with the reality that sometimes we have this idea of who we want Jesus to be and what we want Christianity to be all about. We want it to be on our terms. We want to still sort of live in the world a little bit. We want to have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Christianity at the same time. But the Bible doesn't allow for that to be the case. And so the gospel continues to offend people today simply not because they don't understand what it says, but because they're not willing to accept its implication. And that's what's going on here. This is rejection. But then we have acceptance in verse 67 to 71. Jesus turns to the twelve and asks them a question. Do you also want to go away? And I want to submit to you that this question is not asked because Jesus didn't know the answer. This question is asked for the benefit of the twelve. Jesus has said some very important things, some very hard things, if you will, in this context. And it's become perfectly obvious that many, and notice, by the way, verse 60, verse 60 and 66, the ones who went away, these are not his enemies. These are the disciples. These are the ones who have been following him, but they were disciples only in name. Because though they were following him, they weren't willing to give their lives over to him. And that, after all, is what following him requires. So now, Jesus asked this question to the twelve because he wants to emphasize the point. He wants them to see it as well. Are you also going to go away? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And again, here we are, right back where we started. Eternal life. The people are looking for Jesus not because they cared about what he said, but because they wanted him to feed them. Jesus says, you've got your emphasis in the wrong place. You're thinking only about things that are temporary and good for this life right here. But I'm here to give you things not for this life. I'm here to give you that which is going to sustain you through eternity. I'm here to give you eternal life. And as the context goes on, it teaches us that in order to feast on that that he gives us for eternal life, that means that we have to hear what he says, that we have to accept it, and that we have to obey it. So Peter rightly says, you have the words of eternal life. It's equivalent to saying you're the bread of life because when we hear them and when we obey them, then we're feasting on the bread. That's the context. That's the connection. So our study concludes this evening with the same questions that we looked at this morning. The questions and the application hasn't changed. It's simply just here for us to consider again. We know that the word is the word of life. We know that Jesus says some things, that Jesus requires some things that are not all that popular, that they challenge us, that they push us out of our comfort zone. That's what the gospel does. The question is not whether we see what it says and understand what it means. The question is simply whether or not we're willing to accept it. The Lord's invitation is open tonight for all who are prepared to accept it. Some, perhaps, who have not yet obeyed the gospel, been immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Remember that Jesus said in John 6, 63, it's the Spirit that gives life. And the Bible will teach us that it is the Word that the Spirit that is, uh, has inspired that pricks the hearts of men, that pushes us to repentance, that helps us to see the error of our ways and prompts us to be able to change our lives so that we might live acceptably in His sight and have eternal life. Now the question is whether or not we're going to allow the Word to prick our hearts and the way that it's designed. The invitation is offered for someone tonight who needs to respond to the gospel, either to become a child of God and have their sins washed away, to become a Christian, to be added to the body of Christ, or perhaps for the child of God, who again has lost his way. Emphasis is in the wrong place. You're no longer interested in obeying the will of God and following the word of God so that you can feast on the word of life. Come back home. If we can help you, come and let your need be known while we stand and sing together.